Welcome to a special edition of Museum Chat Live. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. In the spring of 2020, we began to offer history lectures through our virtual museum lecture series live on YouTube. Now, with over 20 lectures, we're happy to bring the lecture audio to the podcast format so that more people can enjoy these fascinating stories. If you want to catch the lectures in full, take a gander at our YouTube channel. You'll find us under St. Catherine's Museum. We will release most of the 20 lectures over the next few weeks, and as we add more lectures to YouTube, so too will they eventually appear here on the podcast. We hope these lectures provide a bit of historical joy and also spark imagination and exploration into our city's rich history. More lectures are headed your way this fall and this coming winter. For details, please visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca, or give us a call at 905-984-8880 during our operating hours to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Another guest joins us for the lecture this week. Dr. Carrie Cronin is a historian of visual culture and a faculty member at Brock University, with a special focus on the history of animals. In her lecture titled Racetracks and Runaway Carriages, Dr. Cronin looks at the history of horses in St. Catharines. This lecture was originally presented on June 17, 2020. Enjoy the lecture. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I am pleased to welcome Dr. Carrie Cronin to tonight's lecture. Uh, Dr. Cronin is an is Associate Dean, Research and Graduate Studies in the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. She is also a Fellow of, Oxford's, uh, of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics and a founding member of Brock University's Social, Social Justice Research Institute. Her research focuses on the history of visual culture and on human animal histories. Her most recent book, Art for Animals, looks at ways in which animal ag- oh, blah. <laughs> animal advocacy groups <laughs> uh, in the late 19th, late 19th and early 20th century centuries used art and other images in their campaigns. Her talk tonight is part of a brand new project she is undertaking that looks at human animal histories in the Niagara region. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Cronin. Yay! I, I think everyone else is also clapping at home. So I will stop sharing and everyone at home, please just bear with us as we make the switch to Dr. Cronin's slides. Hello to all who are uh, in the chat box and who are watching. Uh, very nice to see you all. And looks like we're good to go. So I am going to go away <laughs> if I can figure out how to do that. Okay, there we go. And But I'll be in the background. So if you run into any problems, just let me know. And I'll be in the chat box in case anybody has any problems. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, well, thank you very much, Adrian, for that introduction and for having me here um, to talk as part of this lecture series tonight. I've been really enjoying my Tuesday evenings with the museum lecture series, so it's a, it's a real honor to be a part of this um, here today. So my talk tonight is gonna be exploring um, some of the histories of 19th century uh, human-animal interactions, and specifically, I've decided to focus on horses today. This is um, the species of animals that perhaps we're most familiar with when we think about 19th century history. Um, and certainly in terms of historical records, something I'll talk about in a second, um, it's the type of animal that comes up the most often. But that's not to say there weren't um, other animals, as we'll see. So I'm also going to be primarily focusing on what we now know as downtown St. Catharines, um, because in the 19th century, that's really where we see the hub of urban activity taking place. There's a couple of exceptions in my slides, as you'll see, but that's really where the primary focus is going to be. So 
I need to start by saying St. Catharines, like pretty much every other city and town in this region, was definitely a multi-species landscape in the 19th century. And what I mean by that is that humans that lived there shared their spaces and their lives with a number of different kinds of animals. So today, if we were to walk downtown um, St. Catharines, we would probably see squirrels and birds, um, perhaps some dogs out for a walk on a leash, um, some stray cats or a cat maybe looking at us through an apartment window. All of those animals would have been, or those types of animals, I should say, would have existed, of course, in the 19th century. But if we were to time travel and walk through downtown St. Catharines in the 19th century, we would also encounter a whole bunch of other animals. So pigs, chickens, ducks, geese, for instance, um, and of course, many, many, many horses. If you tuned in last week for Dr. Kimberly Monk's lecture, you probably heard her talk about um, how down at the Shakluna shipyard dig, they've discovered things like leather um, bridles and harnesses and other things indicating, of course, that horses were um, at that site. And on the one hand, this isn't terribly surprising. Um, you know, in the 19th century, we know that horses were a big part of industry. And yet for historians like myself, who are very interested in animal history and piecing together those stories, finding these material, tangible, bits of evidence that this animal was here at this time um, is really exciting and that, that really matters. So why animal history? This is the, the book that Adrian mentioned in the introduction, my most recent book called Art for Animals, came out two years ago now. Um, this book is all about how um, animal advocacy groups in the late 19th and early 20th centuries used imagery and art in their campaigns. So I'm talking about things like humane societies or SPCAs um, and how their campaigns were very visual in nature. So that research was fascinating. It took the better part of a decade <laughs> um, as archival research often does. I traveled throughout England, the United States and Canada looking at primary source documents and other things to piece together this story that really hadn't been told before. But of course, in the process of doing archival research, you come across a lot of things that are not exactly related to your topic, but still interesting. So I started keeping a file of just, you know, random stories about human animal encounters that I found in these archives. And I started to really think about that history in a larger sense. So I was very interested to do, as I said, this, this history on animal advocacy groups. But I really started to think more about you know, day to day lives, people with animals in different times and in different places. What did that look like and what did that mean? Um, so I started to really think about that. And, and as I said, I'm starting to turn my attention now to the Niagara region with this lens of human animal history. And I'm certainly not alone in this kind of interest. Um, in recent years, there's been a number of conferences, books, um, exhibits and other such things exploring animal history or human animal history, those relationships, those interactions. Um, these are just two examples of exhibits that I saw last year that I thought did a particularly good job of this. Um, one is from the Archives of Ontario, the other one was in, in London, England, The Beasts of London. And both of these um, exhibits, the curators took material that was in the archives and took a second look at them. Uh, of course, as we know, museums and archives and history books are written and curated and organized by humans for humans. But we also know, of course, that this human history has been entangled with animal history for centuries. But we tend, or the historical record tends not to privilege those animal stories, as I said, until recently. So these curators didn't have to go out and find any new material. They worked with what was in their collection, but they just sort of turned it inside out or flipped it on its head and looked very carefully for evidence of animal lives, animal deaths, animal bodies, and brought those to the forefront in these exhibitions. And I've used these examples because this really illustrates what I'm trying to do with my new project here is going into the archival record for Niagara region and starting to put this different lens on. Where are the animals? Where are the gaps? How can we learn things about how people related to animals? How can we potentially learn about individual animals? That's a bit trickier as I'll talk about in a moment. Um, and so all these kinds of stories and questions I'm bringing to this new project, which is as I said, still in its very preliminary stages. So let's get to the um, topic at hand, which is St. Catharines. So when we're looking creatively in the historical record for traces of the animal presence, um, it's not only interesting, which I think it is, and I hope that you think it is, but I also think it's really important because when we go back in time and start thinking about how 
humans interacted with certain species in certain spaces, we start to learn a lot about sort of the, the rules, the regulations, the customs, the habits that governed the way we are with animals. And so none of this is natural or inevitable. Um, and there's a lot of historians I'm drawing on here. Um, I'm just giving you the shorthand. Um, who talk about how our relationships with animals are, of course, very much dictated by culture. Why this matters, especially at this moment, I think, is that we are collectively, as humans, in a period in our history where we really are needing to think quite deeply about our relationships with nature, with animals, with the species we share the planet with. Um, there's a lot of obvious um, you know, environmental crises, things like the current pandemic that we're in. Um, and so thinking about how we relate to animals and how we got to where we are, um, I think is an important place to start thinking about this history as well. As I said, none of this is sort of natural or inevitable. So imagine, if you will, what it would be like to walk down St. Paul Street in the 19th century. And I know there's at least a couple people on this um, call tonight who are not from St. Catharines. So um, for your benefit, I'll just say St. Catharines um, has a main street, beautiful, historic, quirky, wonderful street called St. Paul Street. That's really the heart of the downtown community. And so that's the street I'm talking about here. And that's what this photograph is, is showing. So imagine walking down St. Paul Street in the 19th century, and you're going to be seeing horses, whether they're pulling two-wheeled carts, um, four-wheeled carriages, whether they're being ridden. Horses were a big, big presence in this part of St. Catharines at this time. But in addition to seeing them, you would also hear them. Think about things like hoofbeats. Think about things like whinnies in the air, or perhaps even the crack of a whip as a driver was trying to rein in, quite literally, um, a boisterous team of horses. There's also the smell. So that sweet smell of hay, perhaps in the air from the livery stables nearby. I'll talk about those in a moment. Or that pungent smell of manure or the smell of leather from the harnesses, the bridles, that sort of thing. This is the kind of landscape that you'd be walking into. There's a historian who writes about animal history and her name is Sherry Olson. And I really love her work um, for many, many reasons. But she has a phrase that she uses called the phantom thousands. And I found this to be such a wonderful phrase. What she talks about when she writes about the phantom thousands are all of the animals who have lived in these spaces with us and, and our ancestors over generations. So the phantom thousands then are the animals who walked on St. Paul Street or other such streets um, in previous eras. And so when I go walking down these streets, these historic streets, I can't help but think of her phrase, the phantom thousands. Who walked here and what were they doing? What were they thinking? What kind of lives did they have? When you walk through St. Catharines and other parts of the Niagara region, you can find tangible material um, examples of this horse history. And so these are just some examples. Um, I had fun this week going out and getting some of my friends to help me um, taking pictures of some of these things. So here we see um, carriage blocks on Geneva and North streets. And these of course were um, concrete blocks that allowed people to step up into carriages or onto horses think especially about women in their long skirts and dresses in the 19th century. And then um, a hitching post over on Yates Street. And there's others in the region. I saw one, a really beautiful one in Thorold yesterday as well, but I had to limit my examples for the sake of time here. So having these kind of tangible reminders in the landscape can help sort of trigger our mind to those phantom thousands. You know, who was here? Who walked here? What was their, what was their life like? This is um, admittedly a later example. I'm focusing on the 19th century, but this is, this is what um, I have to work with here. Uh, so this is a, a watering trough actually from the 1930s um, that was in downtown St. Catharines, and now it's been reclaimed and put out front of the Lincoln County Humane Society on 4th Avenue. And as you can see, used as a very beautiful decorative planter. Um, and this kind of brings to mind a point that I was talking about just a moment ago that Animal histories have not always been taken seriously. Um, they've certainly not been um, a core mission in a lot of curating and collecting principles over the years, if you will. And so a lot of times we see animal history as expendable. So a water trough, for example, could have been just, you know, taken to the landfill or recycled um, with a construction project. You know, nobody really thought that this was something to keep. So that's what makes these examples, these, these carriage blocks, the 
the, um, the water trough, that kind of thing, really, really valuable because they did survive, um, you know, some of these dominant attitudes of just getting rid of this history. I want to just take a moment, though, to talk about these water troughs um, in a general sense. We know from newspaper articles and the like that there were several of these kinds of things in St. Catharines in the 19th century. Um, and of course, they were not just in St. Catharines. They were um, in many, many cities in, in North America, in England. Um, this example that's next to the trough here, the, the reproduction of Herring's painting of three members of the Temperance Society, speaks to the complexity of these troughs. Not only were they put out for horses and, and livestock to drink from, but they also were ideologically tied into the temperance movement in a number of different cities. Um, so drinking water instead of beer, for instance. So when we see these kind of two areas of politics collide, animal history and temperance history, um, often in these, these kinds of um, troughs. And so I will continue to look for more examples. And, and I should say, if anybody knows of any more, I'd be happy to hear from you. There's a wonderful book called The Horse in the City by historians Joel Tarr and Clay McShane. And their book focuses mostly on the United States, but they have frameworks that are useful for other parts of um, other geographical regions. So for example, they talk about horses in the 19th century as being living machines. That's a phrase that they use a lot in their book. And so what they're talking about, of course, is horses doing essential work to keep uh, societies running at this time. And the field of um, labor studies, just like my field, um, history and art history, has also expanded to start to consider animal perspectives. My colleague, Dr. Kendra Coulter, has done some groundbreaking work on animal labor. And so if you're interested in this, I certainly recommend her work as well. So when we think about horses as these living machines, then we can think of examples like this. This is from the fire department um, in St. Catharines, course using horses um, to respond to, to fires and other activities. We know that the first fire truck in St. Catharines wasn't purchased until 1917. So horses were an integral part of that service. Also things like transportation um, in terms of things like stagecoaches or as this example shows here a male stage um, horses of course were essential for this um, you know pulling pulling the stagecoaches. In fact, from the earliest days of settler presence in what we now know as St. Catharines, one of the earliest buildings, the tavern at Shipman um, Corners, was um, an important stop for the stagecoaches where passengers could get on and off and also where tired horses could be rotated out for horses with fresh legs. So that was a, you know, very literally a cornerstone of the settler community here. We also know, of course, these were long, arduous journeys. Many, many newspaper articles from the day talk about the rough condition of the roads, um, the ruts in the mud, how they were just treacherous to, to travel on. We also have to think about the length of time um, these trips took. So for example, an approximate time frame for a journey from Queenston to St. Catharines, I don't know how long it would take in a car today, maybe 20 minutes, uh, was approximately three hours on one of these stagecoaches. So these were not um, you know, compared to our modes of transportation today, this was really, really um, quite uh, difficult traveling. In town, of course, we have, as I said, um, two-wheeled carts, four-wheeled carriages. Later on, omnibuses, which were essentially large um, wagons that could hold multiple passengers and, and drawn by multiple horse teams. This photograph, I think, does such a great job of illustrating that kind of dynamism that we would have seen on this main thoroughfare in St. Catharines. I am also a historian of visual culture and photography, so when I look at an image like this, I can't help but get excited by what I'm seeing here. So if you look closely at the horses, you can see that they're blurry. Um, and this would have to do with the long exposure times in um, photography at this time. And so try to get a horse to stand still for a couple of minutes for an exposure, um, they're not going to do it. So th this was likely maybe closer to a minute, just judging by the light. Um, but you can see that the buildings are crisp, the wagons are crisp, but then this blurriness of the motion of, as the people and the horses were working their way through the street. In 1879, we have the start of horse-drawn streetcars. They ran on rails and carried up to 12 passengers. 
1887, we start to see electric rail service come into play. And Adrian talked about this a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to go over that in any great detail, but I think his talk is up on YouTube, so you can watch it if you're interested. But a key point to know here is that with these new transportation technologies, we might assume that the horse kind of goes by the wayside, but that's not in fact the case. They still needed horses to get these um, cars up, up the hills. They also needed the horses when the canal was drained and electricity wasn't around to run the street railway. So horses were brought in from time to time to go back to that old technology. And sadly, as the streets started to get more and more crowded with different kinds of transportations, we see more and more stories reported in the local papers of collisions between horses and trains and streetcars and later automobiles. The Library and Archives Canada has some very interesting records about people making claims um, for injured or even killed horses in St. Catharines um, due to some of these, these collisions. So it wasn't always easy being a horse in St. Catharines in the 19th century, that's for sure. Horses were integral to the Welland Canal and I could do a whole talk on that. So this is gonna be just a really quick um, introduction here, but both in terms of building the canal and also operating the canal, we see lots and lots of horses employed here. Um, and yes, I realized the one picture here is from Thorold, but it's a really lovely visual, so I thought we would, we would use it here. We know that in the 1820s when the first canal was being built, there was large numbers of supplies for horses, so things like hay and oats being brought in to make sure that the, the equine workforce um, was fed properly so that they could do the work they were being asked to do. And then, as I said, once the canal opened, the horses were used to move ships through um, it. And this was really, really tough work. They were um, working in tandem with the tow boys who would essentially, as the name implies, help tow the ships through various parts of the canal and the horse would provide a lot of the labor. There's a wonderful quote from a book in 1913 that if you don't mind, I would like to read for you um, because it gives a very vivid and visual description of what life might have been like for these horses. So this is a book called A Century of Sail and Steam on the Niagara River by Barlow Cumberland and it was published in 1913 but he's looking back at um, what was going on on the Niagara River prior to this. So of these horses that worked on the canal he wrote quote poor beasts there was every description of horse pony or mule forced into the service but an all-prevailing similarity of lean side and projecting bones, of unkempt coats gradually approaching similar color as the red mud dried upon their hides. He also noted that the, quote, poor devils of drivers, boys or men, who traded along the canal bank with them were little better off than their beasts, end quote. And so we get these sort of picturesque images, literally the book is called Picturesque Canada, but when we read the contemporary descriptions, the eyewitness accounts, it was anything but picturesque. It was hard work um, and there was a lot of, of difficulty and suffering both in terms of, of horses and humans. Some of you might know that in the history of St. Catharines in the 19th century we were a big hot spot in terms of spa towns. Um, so there was three um, hotels um, resorts in the downtown area. There was the Stephenson House, Welland House and Springbank and there's these wonderful histories and again that's a whole um, other lecture that would that should happen um, and perhaps it will. So these were, were luxury hotels, they were um, they had mineral water springs, people would go there to take the waters for all kinds of health ailments and people would come from all over to stay at these um, world famous resorts and it's hard to see in these images but if you look closely in both of them there are um, horses and carriages bringing visitors to and from the rail station to the, the hotels. On the subject of equine history, sadly, the founder of the Stephenson House, Eliza William Stephenson, who was known as Colonel, was killed in 1867 in a carriage accident. He was driving and his horses got spooked and he was thrown from the carriage and he did not recover. So that is a, another one of those sort of sad notes in our, our horse history of St. Catharines. Most of you probably know Montebello Park, our sort of gem of a park in downtown St. Catharines. In 1887, when Frederick Law Olmsted was designing it and doing the landscaping work, it was recognized that a lot of um, heavy lifting had to be done. Um, some of the soil had to be replaced 
and new soil had to be brought in, soil that was suitable for growing a rose garden. The land had to be leveled. And we can see in this photograph from 1887 that horses did a lot of that heavy labor, once again, just like on, on the canal. Ironically, once the park was finished, completed, horse riding in the park was strictly prohibited. So they were allowed to work on it, but then they were banned from the park space. So I've just give you, given you kind of a quick rundown of this idea of horses as living machines in St. Catharines. Um, I've really just scratched the surface, of course. There's a lot more we could say about any of these. But I think even that quick tour, um, you probably can see that, that life wasn't always easy for horses. Um, they were worked hard. There was difficult conditions, sometimes long days. Um, some of their human companions were kinder than others. Um, and it's no accident that we start to see the rise of things like SPCAs and humane societies right around the same time in the 19th century. So there's more and more horses working in increasingly dangerous situations. Um, and as I said, some kind of discrepancy in terms of, of kindness or cruelty on the part of their human companions. St. Catharines was no exception. We see the formation of the Lincoln County Humane Society in 1881, right on par with other um, cities and, and towns around us. And also, as I said, in the United States and in the United Kingdom. This was a movement that was happening at this time in the 19th century for many reasons, but one of the main ones was in response to what, what people were seeing in terms of horses being used as living machines. Sadly, the archive of the Lincoln County Humane Society here in St. Catharines um, was destroyed in a fire. So it's not something I can access. This is the second time in my career I've actually been stymied by an archive that was burned to the ground, which is so, so sad and so tragic. But one thing I can say is that it's very important to recognize that at this time, all of these kinds of organizations, humane societies, um, SPCAs, were part of a network. They worked together, they shared ideas, their publications all look very, very similar. They all have the same images, they have the same letters reprinted. People from one organization would travel to another town and give talks. And so there was a network that the Lincoln County Humane Society was absolutely part of. So even though we don't have the specific records to work with, we can look to groups like the Toronto Humane Society to figure out some of the main issues that they would have been pursuing. And in fact, there's a newspaper paper article from 1892 that's reporting on a meeting of the Lincoln County Humane Society. And at that meeting, there was talk about joining up with the Toronto Humane Society. It was voted on and, it was, and the motion was carried. So we do have evidence that there was collaboration between the organizations. So that allows us to extrapolate a little bit and think about the kinds of conversations that would have happened um, around animal cruelty in St. Catharines. So these images are all from an 1888 publication out of Toronto, as you can see from the caption, but they give you an idea of some of the things that these organizations were talking about in terms of the lives of horses and, and how to improve them. So they were concerned, of course, about um, people beating their horses or excessive violence. Um, as I said, it wasn't an even playing field in terms of how people related to or responded to their horses. And that's one of the things I want to do in this larger project is, is get into sort of individual accounts, diaries and letters and, and, and sort of find out how individuals were talking about individual horses. That's not easy to accomplish. As I said, these records are, are few and far between, but I'm optimistic. Um, the other thing, uh, another main thing was, was the use of check or bearing reins. So that's the image on the far right uh, on your screen. So there's a comparison between a, a horse that's free and unrestrained, it says. And then you can see the, the image right below it is a horse with all of these um, sort of tightly harnessed reins. And the bearing rein was something that held the horse's head up really high, unnaturally high. And it was done strictly for fashion. Um, elite classes thought it looked really good to be driving through the park in a carriage with your horse um, holding his or her head high. So bearing reins had no practical function other than for fashion. And these organizations really thought they were quite cruel, um, which they were. And so that was something the organizations would have taken on. Down to the bottom corner, um, the issue of overworking horses, definitely something that came up in St. Catharines based on the industries that we had here. Um, the canal case study alone 
will probably un uncover a lot of those kinds of concerns, certainly with the working conditions. And then lastly, not protecting um, horses from the elements. So leaving them out in the rain, the snow, not putting blankets on them, not having adequate stabling, that kind of thing. So this gives you a taste of what some of the conversations must have been like around the table with the Lincoln County Humane Society. So even though we don't have their full record, we can, can learn a bit from what others were doing. There are some tiny snippets of evidence that do exist in the historical record about some of the, the work. Um, in the newspaper, for instance, there is talk about the use of horse blankets, which we know the Toronto Humane Society and others were, were advocating for, um, and also a little bit on working conditions. So it's, it's few and far between, but it does pop up in, in the newspaper for sure. The other thing that was kind of a big deal for these organizations in the 19th century was humane education. And humane education was essentially teaching children to be kind to animals. And this again comes from Toronto, but we know if we go back to that 1892 newspaper article I talked about where the Lincoln County Humane Society meeting was reported on, there was a special section of that meeting for children. And that's code for this was a humane education lesson. So this would be an opportunity for whoever was giving the speech that night to talk to children directly about why they should be kind to animals, what that meant. Um, there was often lantern slideshows or songs or plays or poems that accompanied these lessons to help kids sort of engage in an active learning way. And so we can be fairly certain that a lot of this was also going on in St. Catharines as well. Just a tiny little sidebar, but I would be remiss, especially in this context of our, our current pandemic, to not mention that the year 1872 was a very scary time to be a horse. Um, this was the year that an infectious disease sort of ran rampant through horse populations in North America. It started just outside of Toronto. It was known as the Great Epizootic. And at the time it was a terrifying disease because nobody knew what it was. Um, Later analysis indicates that it was probably some kind of equine influenza, but at the time nobody really knew why these horses were getting really, really sick. Coughing, fatigue, and it was spreading like wildfire through stables and from city to city to city. The Globe in Toronto reported on this illness extensively, um, and I would be uh, remiss not to point out the excellent work that my colleague um, Sean Courage at York University has done on this. He's, he's really done some excellent historical um, research on this disease and how it not only um, made horses sick, but it also really stalled the economy, if you can imagine, um, how dependent people were on horses at this time, and to have so many of them go down ill and eventually die with this disease that was spreading in such a scary way. Um, was a really, really big deal. Again, I'm still digging around for evidence of this particular disease in this particular city, but given what um, Sean has uncovered, there is no way that St. Catharines was left untouched by this disease. It spread from city to city across North America. So I'm gonna continue to look for more um, local, local resources on that. As we've seen, of course, then, Horses were such a big part of life in the 19th century in St. Catharines and of course other places. And this led to what I'm calling an equine economy. And we see this entire set of businesses sort of spring up in downtown St. Catharines in response to the presence, increased presence of horses. So saddle makers, blacksmiths, wagon makers, carriage makers, livery stables, veterinary surgeons, druggists and chemists selling medicine for horses, among other kinds of businesses. And if you start to map out these businesses in what we now know as downtown St. Catharines, it becomes very, very apparent just how much real estate was taken up to support this equine economy. Blocks and blocks of our, our city was kind of dedicated to these sorts of industries. So as far back as the 1827 census, we see three blacksmiths, two saddlers, this jumps up to seven blacksmiths by 1846. By that time, we have three carriage makers. 1846, we also see the first veterinary surgeon on record here. And so this is just an, a growing and expanding equine economy in response to the large number of horses that were continuing to be part of this population. 
These are just some ads from these, um, this is a Fuller's directory, looking at these city directories from the 19th century gives you a really good indication too of the, the volume of, of businesses dedicated to providing for horses. So on the far side, we see a chemist and druggist who provided horse and cattle medicines. You can see at the bottom, blacksmith establishments describing what they, they can offer, stagecoach, saddle and harness making. This is another um, set of ads from a book with possibly one of the longest titles ever. Um, I think I've seen longer, but this was certainly fun to type out. Um, livery stables. Um, and also we can see for Karen's house, there's um, omnibus um, services from the hotel to, to the station, as I was talking about earlier. Livery stables, just for those of you that are not immersed in animal history the way I am. Um, these were an important part of this equine economy. They were stables where you could um, board your horse if you kind of rode in from out of town, for example, or if you needed to rent a carriage or anything like that. And some of these organizations establishments were very, very big. Um, there's, there's reports in the newspaper of some of them having upwards of 50 horses um, on the premises in downtown St. Catharines. As Adrian mentioned, I'm a professor at Brock and I'm one of the lucky ones who gets to have an office in the now um, redesigned former Canada Hair Cloth Company, the Marilyn I. Walker School of Fine and Performing Arts. So I'm quite familiar with this building um, right now. I would be remiss then if I didn't talk a little bit about this and how it links to equine history. So this, um, of course, is a very important factory um, in terms of its location along the raceway, um, but also in terms of its prominence in, in the economy of St. Catharines at this time. It was founded in 1884 by James and Hugh McSloy, and it was a textile factory. I know a lot of people um, hear about the Canada Hair Cloth Company and they're, they're confused about what it was. This was a very specific type of textile. It was a blend of horsehair and cotton. Um, and it, it ended up making this sort of stiff um, cloth, this textile that could be used for a number of different things. It was used for, um, for upholstery, for furniture. It was also used as the lining for suits and it was used for crinolines for very fashionable dresses. So what we're looking at here um, above, above the captions is an ad from the Globe from 1893 for the Canada Hair Cloth Company calling out to women um, thinking about their new spring fashions um, and how they might want to get one of these horsehair crinolines from St. Catharines for their fashionable dress. I couldn't find any examples in local publications of what that might have looked like, but this is a beautiful ad from Vogue um, from roughly the same time. So you can see that this, this stylish skirt, as the ad said, um, has one of these horsehair crinolines underneath of it to give it its unique shape. Eventually, or so the record says, um, the Canada Hair Cloth Company switched from horsehair to goat hair. Um, it was apparently easier to use, but horse is certainly a big part of that industry and economy as well. Unfortunately, as we're looking through the historical record, there's not a lot in terms of individual information about horses. They're kind of grouped together. And that's something I'm trying to tease out with this research is, you know, what was life like for individual horses? What were they like? What did they look like? What were their preferences? What's their personality? But there are some places we can find some of this information. So ads like this one that talk about lost or stolen horses, um, describing them. So this one talks about um, one gray and one bay horse went missing. This is from Port Dalhousie, which I should note is not part of St. Catharines at the time, but this was such a good example, I had to bring it in. Um, one horse has scratches on both hind legs. So these ads give us individual details about what this individual animal might've looked like. It's not much, but it's starting to tease out a little bit of that, that individuality, which we're so interested in um, as historians. Also, let's go back. Um, we see a lot in the paper about runaway horses, runaway carriages. Um, I'm not going, in the interest of time, I'm not going to read them all for you, but the descriptions indicate that these horses were spooked, they were scared, they were upset. Something was stressing them out. Um, they're not running away to be you know, bad or disobedient. So that gives us again, a little tiny glimpse into their individual responses or old personalities. And then the third area that I've found 
where we can start to get a little glimpse into those individual qualities of horses has to do with horse racing. And when I started this research, I did not realize how big horse racing was in the city in the 19th century. Um, it was absolutely massive. So we start to see, and perhaps not surprisingly, in reports on individual horses in the racing industry, um, pretty good descriptions about individual horses, their personalities, what they looked like, how they behaved, that sort of thing. A man named John Carroll was a noted breeder of racehorses in St. Catharines in the 19th century. And many of his horses were descendants of this very famous racehorse, Membrino Patchen. Membrino Patchen was from Kentucky, um, but John Carroll bred many of his mares with Membrino Patchen. So a lot of the horses that were in St. Catharines at Carroll's farm were descendants of Membrino Patchen. What we're looking at here is a stereo card. Um, and a stereo card was very popular in the 19th century, this double image. If you see that, you know you're looking at a stereo card. It would go into a special stereograph viewer, and when you look through it, the two images blended into one to make a three-dimensional image. And so this was a form of entertainment. People collected these cards, um, and it was very, very exciting to have a new set of stereo cards and to you know, gather your friends and, and look at them in this way. Um, and so the fact that Membrino Patchen has his own stereo card indicates his fame in the 19th century. And so we have a, a St. Catherine's connection here. A reporter with the Globe visited Carroll's farm in April 1880, and he spent some time with the horses and he observed them. And he wrote a lot about a horse called Forest Membrino, which was the son of this very famous animal we're looking at here. He described him as, quote, a magnificent looking stallion. And then he goes on to describe how he was playing, how he was enjoying being out in the paddock, how his silvery mane was flowing behind him. Um, and on and on about what this horse was doing, what kind of play he was engaging in, um, and a little bit about his personality. So again, this is another avenue to try and sort of scratch the surface, learning about these horses as individuals, not just as this kind of group of animals. The same article talked about a horse named Zulu, called him, quote, something of a curiosity, and talked about his temper and how difficult he was. So the contrast between these two horses um, is really, really interesting to note here. As I said, horse racing was huge in this city. In 1871, Fairdale Park opens. This is south of Russell Avenue in what we now know as Midtown, which where I'm standing right now. This was a fairgrounds, it had agricultural exhibits, but also was the home to a number of different horse races. And so when we look at the newspapers in September 1885, for example, the Globe reported on the fair and called it the most successful that St. Catharines had ever had, 5,000 in attendance, which was double the previous year. Makes me wonder what was going on in 1884. And then went on to talk about the races that happened at Fairvale Park. And what's especially interesting is that they had a special class of races for women racers. So they had all of the, the men and they gave their times. And then there was a whole section of the article talking about the women racers. And so there was a number of women that, that placed first and second. Um, Mrs. W. Early, first place. Miss Nettie Brown of Font Hill, second place. And then there was a class for lady drivers. So for the trotting horses, um, lady drivers, I like that. Um, and it was very, very exciting because there was a runaway in the middle of the race. And so the, the driver got tossed into the crowd unhurt, no report on what happened to the horse. Um, and eventually there was a winner at the end of the day. So very, very exciting over at Fairwell Park. Another big deal race that was covered by the papers, this is from the Canadian Illustrated News, was the Grand Match in 1863, a trotting match as you can see. And it took place between two horses, an American horse named Jake Oakley from Buffalo and the local favorite, Towboy from St. Catharines. And this was a race of five heats. The horse would have to win, the horse would have to win three of the heats. So it starts off fairly evenly. Each one of the horses wins one of the first two heats, go into the third tide and all of a sudden drama ensues. Jake Oakley had to withdraw. The reports don't say why likely an injury. And so the local favorite Tollboy finished the race by himself and was declared the winner, $500 prize, which of course was a big deal. 
And perhaps the most notable race was the running of the Queen's Plate in St. Catharines in 1867, just one week prior to Canada's Confederation. It was run at a location um, that would later become the Thomas Street Sports Park. So I'm pointing because it's that way from where I'm standing. The race was in the news a lot because it was postponed for almost a month due to bad weather. Um, there was a lot of grumbling about, well, we should just run it anyways. What, what difference does it make? But finally, as I said, right at the end of, um, end of the month, the race ran uh, and it was a big, big deal. The city basically shut down. Shops were closed um, and about 2000 people came out to watch the race. Now, if you follow horse racing, you know that the Queen's Plate is Canada's longest running thoroughbred race. It started in 1860. And it used to move around to different cities, including St. Catharines in 1867. It moved permanently to Toronto in 1883. But this history before it became um, sort of a Toronto fixture is quite interesting, the different local responses in the local community. We know that the St. Catharines race had nine horses in it, and it was described by the local media of the day as, quote, one of the finest fields and the closest races ever seen on the Canadian turf. The race was open to any horse from Upper Canada, and the winner that day was a horse named Wild Rose, a six-year-old filly. So there's a little bit of, of information about her. We also see horses appearing in other forms of entertainment in St. Catharines. So in 1855, the semi-weekly post advertised an upcoming show by the celebrated equestrian troupe Myers and Madigan. As we can see in the newspaper ad, it's very, very poor quality, but squint and you can probably see. Um, this paper is very fragile. I accessed it in the, um, the archives at Brock and it's, it's so wonderful to have these resources, but they're so fragile and faded as well. But you can see in this ad that they also, in addition to having an equestrian troupe brought um, animals with them like giraffe, lion, um, these so-called exotic animals um, were part of this traveling show. We know that Myers and Madigan made an extensive tour of Southern Ontario in 1855. St. Catharines was one stop of many, but it seems like something maybe went wrong that year because that was the last year that they were in operation. And when you look at this touring schedule they had with all of these animals, I can imagine some of the scenarios that might've occurred that might've been stressful for the company. After that, Jim Myers went out on his own, started his own company and toured widely. Um, his, um, his show went across Europe, for example, throughout the United States. And so this painting that we're looking at here is from one of Myers' shows later on after Myers and Madigan folded. Um, but it just gives you a little taste of the kinds of performances that Myers was known for. This is of course in, in France. So as we've seen, there's a number of ways that horses and humans interacted with one another in 19th century St. Catharines. I've just scratched the surface, of course. Not all of these interactions were always positive. I've touched on the need for the Lincoln County Humane Society and, and anti-cruelty measures, but it's also important to stop and think about some of the more mundane, but equally important concerns that arose when humans and horses lived together. So in 1841, we know that St. Catharines had a vigilance society formed because of horse theft. And so this was a society that was, um, quote, for the speedy and effectual detection and punishment of horse thieves, 1841 in St. Catharines. There was also widespread and ongoing concern about the speed and power of these horses in residential and commercial areas that were becoming increasingly populated. For instance, in January 1892, the St. Catherine Standard reported on complaints about horses speeding down Church Street. To try and address this, the city regulations prohibited galloping and quote, any other immoderate rate within city limits. By all accounts, many people didn't adhere to these regulations. And there's all kinds of reports of collisions, as I said before, and also people just having the wits scared out of them as they sort of had these near misses with, with horses and carriages. There was also concerns about horses running loose in the streets. Can you imagine those phantom thousands? I think about horses running loose on James Street, for instance, and also about people letting their horses graze in vacant lots. There was 
was increasing concern about this as something that shouldn't be done in the city. And of course, there wasn't um, kind of constant tension about the mess horses made. Um, horse dung, if you will, in the streets was an ongoing concern. And citizens were constantly um, writing to the paper, arguing with politicians about the need to have better cleanup measures. At one point towards the end of the 19th century, there was a move to get the entire city council turfed over this issue, so um, contentious. And finally, one of my favorite regulations regarding horses, in 1893, it became against the law to fasten a horse to any tree planted in the city of St. Catharines. So I'm gonna leave it there. Of course, there's much, much more we could talk about in terms of horse history, animal history, but I do want to give a shout out to the following people who have helped me at some point with this research. So grateful to all of them. Um, and also, as I said, this is uh, sort of the beginning of what I think will be a multi-year project. So I'm happy to chat at any point. If you have questions, comments, if you come across examples of animal history that you'd like to share with me, I would love to hear from you. So yeah, I think I'll leave it there. Hi, it's Adrian again. We really hope you enjoyed the lecture. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us via our social media channels or at museum at stcatherines.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca, or give us a call at 905-984-8880 during our operating hours to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Next time on VMLS via podcast, Lost and Historic Architecture of St. Catharines. The Virtual Museum Lecture Series is presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welling Canal Centre. Yeah.